Today's sermon is a continuation of the series in Hebrews. I'll be reading the focal verses for today. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and verses 32 to 40, if you'd like to follow along. Here's the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Continuing in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect." That's the reading of the word of the Lord. Christ is the answer to our doubts. And we've seen that Jesus is the ultimate messenger, the ultimate priest, uh, that Jesus has accomplished our ultimate salvation for us. You know, in other words, we've seen that Jesus is better in every way than anything we could hope for. And this final section of Hebrews looks at our response to Jesus. Jesus is a perfect savior who offers a perfect salvation So how do we respond? And the writer of Hebrew tells us that the right response to Jesus will give us a better life than we could ever imagine. Today's chapter is a pretty famous chapter of scripture. Uh, Many call it the Hall of Faith uh, because it portrays amazing examples of faithful people um, from biblical history. Uh, And this chapter is a Hall of Faith. Uh, But, you know, calling it that can be confusing for a lot of us because in modern English, the word faith, uh, it's lost a lot of its biblical meaning. So today, faith means uh, believing against the evidence or believing without evidence. Uh, And so faith is in opposition to reason or it's in opposition to science, we think. It's putting your brain on hold. Uh, But Hebrews defines faith for us says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So this means two things. Faith is about hope, not just ideas. It's about where we find our confidence. And second, faith leads to action. This whole chapter is about what people did because of their faith. So what was their faith in? The answer is found most clearly in verse 35. The hope is for a better resurrection. A better resurrection implies there's a regular resurrection and there's a better one, right? Comparison. Um, So to understand the the whole point of this chapter, 
We're going to focus on the last verses at the end that Dan read for us. So we're going to look at what is a regular resurrection? What's a better resurrection? And how do we get it? So regular, better, how do we get it? Um, As we jump in, let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears um, to hear your good word um, for us. Um, God, let the things that are just from me fall away and may your um, loving kindness um, pierce to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first, a regular resurrection. So if we look at verses 28 to 38, this paragraph contains the final list in the hall of faith. And it's very interesting. The first half includes people who face certain death, but somehow they triumph. There's no way they're going to make it. They were as good as dead, but then God supernaturally delivers them. So we have the example of Daniel in the lion's den. And so the text says he shut the mouth of lions. So Daniel was thrown to the lions because he refused to pray only to the king, but prayed to God. And God miraculously delivered him. So he uh, emerged completely unharmed from the lions. And then there's the example of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Right? The text says they quenched the fury of the flames. And they refused to bow to the king's idol. Uh, So the king had the furnace heated seven times as hot as usual. But when they were thrown in, the king looked into the furnace and he saw a fourth person there who looked like a god. Yeah. And they emerged from the furnace without even the smell of smoke on their garments. All these early examples in the paragraph. There was struggle, but the struggle turned to their victory. And earlier in the chapter... The author talks about how Abraham, in faith, offered up Isaac as a sacrifice because he believed that God could raise him back from the dead. And the author adds that, in a sense, Abraham did receive Isaac from the dead because as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was as good as dead. Now, there's a big difference between shutting the mouths of lions or even delivering through flames and literally bringing life to the dead. But that's what these examples are building to. So the final set in this list, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. So this is the story or stories of two widows in first and second Kings. And they were both caring for God's prophets, one for Elijah, one for Elisha. And uh, while they're doing so, their only son dies. And Elijah raises the son back to life. And Elisha raises the son back to life, right? Out of death. Resurrection. So we have these great examples of, I'm going to call it regular resurrection. God makes a way when there was no way. God brings life, even literal life, out of death, even literal death. And this regular resurrection stuff, God really does that. Now let's return to verse 35 about the women receiving back their sons. Because that's the turning point in the passage. That's the key to understanding it all. And if you'll let me geek out for a second, the English translations sometimes mask the underlying Greek a little bit. So the Greek says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection, who cares what the Greek word is? 
The point, what matters, I thought you'd laugh. Um, what matters, right, is it's the same word that we use to refer to Jesus' physical resurrection and to the ultimate resurrection promise at the end of history. It's not just coming back to life. It's not resuscitation. The word for resurrection here is not the same word used in verse 19 when we're talking about Abraham and Isaac coming back to life. This is significant because the next key word in this sentence is in the middle. Others. So continuing in the verse, women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to believe, refusing to be released so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Same Greek word for resurrection. The first half of this paragraph, people received a resurrection. But others, others did not receive back their dead. Others were tortured and refused to be released. Others didn't obtain back their dead by regular resurrection, but they waited for a better resurrection. If we don't understand the second half of this section, we're not going to understand any of the chapter. You won't understand faith if you don't understand the better resurrection. You won't understand Christianity. You won't understand Jesus. And let me make a bold claim. You will eventually be doomed in your struggle with doubts and suffering. Believing in a God who makes a way when there is no way, that is a good thing and it requires faith. But if you only ever expect and hope for regular resurrection, then you're going to fail to live a real life of faith. You're going to think... If I just believe enough, if I just trust enough, if I just have God in my heart enough, God will deliver me. And you might say to others, if you just believe enough, if you just trust enough, if you just have God in your heart enough, God will deliver you. And if it doesn't seem like it's working out for you, but that's not biblical because there are others. It's not God's idea. God's word. There are others. There are others who have tremendous faith, tremendous trust, tremendous obedience, and they die publicly shamed because they're hoping for a better resurrection. Even Shadrach and his friends, they knew God would deliver them from the flames. But do you know what they said to the king? They said, but if not, even if God doesn't deliver us, we won't worship you. Our hope is in God. He said, our hope isn't in God delivering us. Our hope is in God. So why do we need a better resurrection? Well, because suffering is real. And we need something to help us face suffering and not crumble. So in traditional cultures, suffering was hard, but always had meaning. uh, Because there was something bigger that you were part of. There was more to the world than, well, the world. Um, And so suffering could help you get in touch with uh, deeper meaning in society or in the universe. You know, if the belief was suffering was really neutral, then that feeling you have that suffering's wrong, suffering helps you get over that and realize, no, no, that's not real. Suffering is neutral, right? Whatever the belief was. Or you would grow character, right? And that had eternal significance somehow, right? Because morality was real and absolute. And so suffering could get you in touch uh, with that absolute reality. Um, But what is modern secularism about? What's our modern society about? So it starts with the belief that the material world is all there is. 
Now, a lot of us, we say, oh, no, this is where it starts. There's no meaning in the universe. It just is. Okay? The universe, you and everything else, is just the random collocation of atoms bouncing around. Um, there's no meaning. It's, it just is. The feeling of love, meaningless chemical reactions in your brain. The feeling of joy is just chemical reactions in your brain, just neurotransmitters responding um, in a way that make you feel good. Um, love, joy, happiness, perceived meaning. There's no real meaning. And morality, obviously, there's no absolute truth and no absolute moral standard everybody every culture has a right to define what's true and right for them because what other choice is there the world just is so life is about making your own meaning live for what makes you feel good there's no real meaning to discover anyways so be happy do what makes you feel good there's no ultimate absolute for you to get in touch with now, most of us skip over that early part about the world just being there. And, but we do jump to that part about the point of life is to be happy. Right? That's the point. Be happy. Which also means avoid suffering. Avoid suffering. Now, you might think I'm just beating up on secular people. But let me add, Christians, we do this too. We just dress it up in religious language. We say, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to achieve all my goals, achieve all my dreams, be all that I can be. And, by the way, God would never ask me to trade my happiness for anything hard. If something makes me happy, God must want it for me. If you aren't sure that describes you, look at your prayer requests. Look at how you pray to God. Take a look at how you weigh decisions in life. How often do you say, wow, this thing, it's so easy and it makes me so, feel so good. It must be what God wants. So going back to secularism, why does it have nothing to say for our suffering? Because in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life. But it is only an interruption. Right? Suffering should be avoided because your life is about being happy, about having your best life, about achieving your dreams, about actualizing and being you. And suffering can only get in the way of that. Suffering, by definition, is not being happy and not achieving what you want. That's what suffering is. That's why when people are suffering, we'll say things like, you'll get through this. Or, it'll pass soon. Right? And these are people who we believe in science. And these are empirically unverifiable claims. Will it pass soon? Will you get through it? We see nothing meaningful that could come if the suffering, well, what if it doesn't pass? Then what? What if this suffering is the new normal? We don't know that it'll pass. We only hope that it might end. And we might get back to what makes us happy and what we said was meaningful. But what if that's just not going to happen? Then what? One author writes, in the secular worldview, all happiness and meaning must be found in this lifetime and world. Right? To live with any hope, then, secular people must believe that we can eliminate most sources of unhappiness for the majority of people. But that is impossible. The causes of suffering are infinitely complex and impossible to eliminate. And you might say, well, suffering can make me a better person. Well, first, that's a traditional idea. Good, fine. Uh, it's not a secular one. And second, suffering is not the same as challenge. 
Okay? So, for example, I was a swimmer. Training is hard. Training is a challenge. Training makes you stronger. But training or challenge, that's not suffering. Okay? Suffering is you're married and you love your wife and she suddenly gets cancer and dies. Or your child is tragically stuck by a bus and dies. Or a tsunami hits Asia and 600,000 people are swept into the ocean. Or a cyclone hits Africa and 1,000 people die. Or a lunatic opens fire in a movie theater. Or two airplanes fly into office buildings. And those are only extreme examples. Every one of us daily, we face countless examples of suffering that, in the secular perspective, are utterly meaningless. Our purpose in life is to be happy, but we face thousands of interruptions to our pursuit of happiness. Our quest for a therapeutic life is constantly interrupted by real external events and by our own internal distress. And all our modern world can say is, this is meaningless, tragic, and it shouldn't happen. Well, it shouldn't happen because we don't want it to. But guess what? It does happen, and it will happen. So what are we going to do? Another natural disaster will destroy millions of lives, and those disasters are becoming more frequent. Another mass shooting will occur again and again, and your spouse will die, your parents will die, your siblings will die, and probably not all of them in their bed exactly when they want to. The, quote, wrong politicians will win, and they will undo everything you hold dear. You know, but modern society says we have a right to live lives free of meaningless suffering. But there's absolutely no evidence that this is true. And so what do you do when suffering hits? You just shake your fists at the cold, meaningless, impersonal world. That's the world we live in. When suffering comes, and it will, what's going to get you through? Because the belief that life's about being happy and finding your own meaning, that won't do it. The belief that God wants you to just be happy, that won't do it either. So what's a better resurrection? Well, who are the others? So first, we saw women who received back their sons. So these others are women who did not receive back their sons from the dead, but who were tortured. So this is a reference to a story that occurred between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, During that time, there was a revolt by a group of Jews who refused to serve the pagan king. And the king, Antiochus, uh, had banned the Torah, burned all the copies he could find. Uh, He banned observing the Sabbath. Right? So can you imagine? He said, work, work, work. Um, Right? He banned circumcision. Anybody caught practicing Judaism was killed. Uh, Usually, first publicly tortured. So Antiochus was a brutal tyrant in general, uh, and especially toward the Jews. So this is the story of the Maccabees. Did anybody grow up singing the song, Light One Candle for the Maccabees? It's a Hanukkah song. Um, We learned those in school in Miami. Anyways, so this verse is referencing 2 Maccabees. Now, the story is at least... PG-13, probably rated R for violence, so read it on your own later, adults. Um, You can type 2MACC7 into Google and something will pop up, okay? Uh, I'm giving a youth-friendly summary. So, chapter 7 tells the story of a Jewish mother and her seven sons who were brought publicly by Antiochus, and he wanted to force them to eat pork. That's it. Just eat some unclean meat. 
disobey God in this simple, seemingly unimportant, insignificant way. Jesus is going to do away with this later anyway. So he takes the first son. First son refuses. And so Antiochus has him tortured in gruesome detail, you can read about later, in front of the whole family. And after the first son died, the family encouraged one another, saying, The Lord God is looking on and understands our suffering. Moses made this clear when he wrote a song condemning those who had abandoned the Lord. He said, The Lord will have mercy on those who serve him. Now, mercy doesn't mean they're going to live. The second son, with his dying breath, said, You butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his laws. The third brother held out his hands and defiantly said, God gave these to me, but his laws mean more to me than my hands. And I know God will give them back to me again. And after watching six sons die, the mother says to her final son, I do not know how your life began in my womb. I was not the one who gave you life and breath and put together each part of your body. It was God who did it. God who created the universe, the human race, and all that exists. He is merciful and he will give you back life and breath again because you love his laws more than you love yourself. The final son gives a passionate, defiant speech proclaiming his trust in God and the chapter ends. And so the boy died with an absolute trust in the Lord, never unfaithful for a minute. Last of all, the mother was put to death. But I have said enough about the Jews being tortured. There are others. They did not receive a regular resurrection. They died. They knew they would. How could these seven sons and this mother, this woman, refuse to do something so simple as eat roast pork? I mean, they could just go offer sacrifice later and get forgiveness, right? What faith did they have that allowed them with such confidence to face certain death? They knew God will give everything back. My hands, my tongue, my head were going to get everything back better than before. There is nothing Antiochus can take us from us that God can't and won't ultimately give back to us. The promise of God is not, is not deliverance from fiery furnaces. It's not deliverance from the lions. It's not deliverance from public shame. Yes, amen. God does that sometimes. We sang about it. But the white hot promise that sears every page of the Old and New Testament is that God will resurrect all of creation, new heavens, new earth, indestructible bodies, evil destroyed, injustice wiped away, and all tears and all suffering will be made right. Not consolation, but restoration. Everything made perfect. Resurrection, glory, the power and beauty of God dwelling with us in perfect harmony. And we live with him with hands and feet and arms and legs. And we sing physical songs and take physical breaths. And our hearts are made clean and pure and justice and mercy reign. That's the biblical hope. That's the better resurrection. Jeremiah proclaimed God's word all his life and he was only ever rejected. He was hoping for a better resurrection. Isaiah proclaimed God's word to a dying people and he was sought in two. He was hoping for a better resurrection. 
Paul, after persecuting Christianity, spent his life proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and he was beaten, he was killed, he was hoping for a better resurrection. We don't live like this. Don't kid yourselves. We don't live like this. And we might look at their example and say, Amen, I would die for my faith. Really, great. Uh, Would you die daily, being faithful in the small things for your faith? Right? Would you sacrifice... Watch, let me say, I'm not up here because I'm a better example. I'm just preaching the text. Would you sacrifice watching your sports game to do the dishes for your wife, for your faith? Right? Would you take time away from your work? Sacrifice your career advancement to spend time with your kids for your faith? Would you take one less vacation to have more money to give away to help the poor? Would you invite the poor and all their messiness into your life? For your faith. Would you joyfully forgive those who hurt you for your faith? Would you forgive your parents, your children, the boy or girl who hurt you, your boss? Would you learn to control your anger for your faith? Would you stop gossiping for your faith? No, the answer is no. There are a thousand ways God calls us each day to lay down our lives in the hope of a better resurrection, and we either don't or we can't. We're not living for a better resurrection. We're living for happiness. We're living for comfort. We're living for expressing ourselves, for discovering ourselves. We're living for the fleeting chemical reactions in our brain that make us feel good when we vent our anger or share our gossip or refuse to forgive or bring pleasure to our bodies. And when inconvenience comes into our lives, we have a right not to be inconvenienced. We can spend our money however we like, right? Maybe we'll give some away, but not as much as God desires. We can use our bodies however we like. Maybe we'll have some standards, okay? But not God's standards. God's old-fashioned. Somebody should tell him it's 2019, and next year in 2020, when we come up with new ones, we'll give him the new list. We can forgive how it suits us, not joyfully, not everybody. And, you know, in the meantime, we might spread some juicy gossip about the people. We can vent our anger however we want. We're in control, we think. And we use that control to control others with our anger. We can redefine human beings made in the image of God, made by God, not by us. We don't know how. Define them into something else. However, whoever it is, however it is, um, because that way they don't inconvenience us. They can't interfere with our career success, with our education, with our happiness. Right? We have a right to be happy. We have a right to what we want, when we want, and not anything else before that. But faith is about living for a better resurrection. You're worried you won't have enough money? If you're living for Jesus, you are a billionaire in glory. You're worried that you won't have enough physical pleasure or romantic affection if you don't have sex outside of marriage? If you're living for Jesus, you have infinite bodily ecstasy awaiting you when you receive your perfect body. And Jesus is your spouse. You're worried that a child or a spouse or an aging parent is going to keep you from pursuing your dreams? These are the very image bearers of God created by God in splendor. You will have eternity in the perfect new earth, to pursue goodness, beauty, and truth in perfect justice in the resurrected glory. 
And now you have glory right in front of you that God has given you to care for. Every single one of us, we're not living radical lives motivated by faith in a better resurrection. We hold back. We're scared. We don't share the gospel with our friends because they'll think we're weird. We water down scripture. We water down God's commands, right? We say, well, is it really clear what the Bible says about? Pick your topic. Do we really know what God says? Is it really such a big deal to eat pork? It's not a big compromise. I can change my view here and still worship God. Change your view. But you're trading a better resurrection, frankly, for garbage. Redefine ethics. Redefine what your life is about, what other people's lives are about. Redefine what God calls you to in life to live for. And you will be left with meaningless, impersonal, random collocations of atoms bouncing around garbage and suffering will destroy you because nothing but the resurrection hope is enough. Nothing else can get you through. We have a better resurrection to live for. So how do we get it? Well, the author of Hebrews throughout the letter says that we have better resources even than this woman in, in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. We have better hope for a better resurrection. Why? Because we have a person who came back from the dead resurrected. Not resuscitated. Resurrected. In the new, eternal, indestructible body waiting for us. You might say, that's nice. It's a nice story, but I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a nice story. It didn't really happen. We can't really believe it. Maybe you can be inspired by it. Uh, Spiritual resurrection, maybe. But it didn't really happen physically, bodily. And you might think it makes you sound intellectual or even open-minded. But actually, it sort of does the opposite. Um, Because first, Christianity doesn't say the story is inspiring or nice. Right? The Greek word is for physical, bodily resurrection. That's the description. And Christianity says, if the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then all of Christianity is garbage. First Corinthians 15. That's what Paul says. If it didn't happen, this all is a bunch of garbage. Who cares? Second, there is no historically plausible explanation for the early church, except that Jesus really did rise from the grave. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it. So I'm going to give the brief summary. People don't have mass hallucinations, but hundreds of people claim to see the risen Jesus. This wasn't a conspiracy because hundreds of people don't turn from persecuting Christianity to being willing to die for it as a conspiracy. The grave was empty. Nobody argues about that. And the Romans and the Jews never produced a body, though they really had every incentive to do so. And the Romans were really good at kind of everything that they did. There's no historically plausible explanation for the evidence, except that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. So if you say, well, I just don't believe it. Great. Good for you. You can do that. But you need to come up with a better historical explanation uh, you know, of what happened. You're making a leap of faith when you say something else must have happened. Something that in 2000 years, nobody's been able to discover. So, no, it's not sophisticated to say, well, it's spiritually inspiring story friends jesus was resurrected 
to indestructible life. And if you live for him, if you put your faith in him, you will be too. Jesus did incredible supernatural miracles, but in his final moments, he was abandoned. The world was not worthy of him. He was not delivered, but he went to the cross and he went to the cross for you to forgive you because you have failed him and you will fail him, but he forgives you. Nothing you have ever done can keep Jesus from loving you. Have you killed somebody? Jesus forgives you. Have you been selfish in your life? Jesus forgives you. And his delight is to bring you into his resurrected, eternal, perfect kingdom. Live for that. No amount of suffering can take that away for you. Let's pray. God, we pray that we would be filled with resurrection power because there is a grave that holds no body. God, we pray that um, your glory and your truth would captivate us so that we would say, take our hands, we'll get them back. We know that we will um, be embraced by you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we can live for you now in every way that you call us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, please rise for the benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us go forth proclaiming our Savior's death and resurrection until he comes. Amen.